trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there, and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join us today for an exercise in wrong think. I want to thank our sponsors, too, who bring you the show each day at this time. Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, Monticello College. Pure Light, the next generation of light bulb. And also HSLAmmo.com. I am, I'm glad you're, you're part of my audience today. I don't know if you're a longtime listener, if you're a, a new listener, but I welcome you to uh, this regular gathering of wrong thinkers. And, uh, and I got to tell you, it's, it's not always an easy thing. We're going to be talking a little bit about, uh, about uh, what it means to be a wrong thinker and why that causes such alarm in some of the different systems or the, to the administrators of the different systems that are always trying to rule us. Yeah, I know I'm clumsy and, uh, and I'm really not that smart. I'm not good looking. You know, it's it. I don't have a whole lot going for me, but there is one thing that drives me to, to crack this mic open every single day and share with you information and insights that hopefully will give you that steel-spined, tail-kicking attitude of, I am going to be a free individual. Because deep down, when you strip away all the you know political dressings and all the lofty words and everything, this is what matters. I don't think there's anything that adds more to the quality of our lives and, and, and adds more to our potential to really become what we were born to become than that quality of freedom. And you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to look around and realize that uh, it's, it's in eclipse right now. It's very much under attack, and, and there's just a lot of crazy stuff going on. Before I dive into some serious wrong think, I, I want to reminisce here for a moment. It was a year ago this morning that uh, that we were hit with an earthquake, okay? So COVID had been going on for roughly one week. I think things had started to get really crazy. The shutdowns had happened. Churches were announcing, okay, there's no longer going to be any church meetings for the foreseeable future. Schools were doing the same. Businesses closing down. It was eerie. You probably remember it. Maybe maybe you had a chance to, to go out and, and uh, drive on nearly empty streets, which where, where I live, that's really unusual. I mean, like, to the point of creepy, like Stephen King's The Stand, creepy, that uh, you're not seeing a lot of people and cars out there on the roadway. So we were already on edge, and there I am laying in bed. I had gotten up early and and done some work and thought, I'm tired. I'm going to just close my eyes for a few minutes and catch a quick cat nap. And as I'm laying there in bed, I can feel the bed start to to shake, and I figured, oh, well, you know, my wife had been up and around, maybe exercising. I thought maybe she'd come and just plop down on the bed next to me, but it wouldn't stop shaking. And sure enough, after about five seconds, I was kind of in that half-in, half-out state of mind where you're not really asleep but close to it. And as the realization hit me that I'm hearing a rumble as I'm feeling the bed continuing to shake and, you know, didn't take too long to put two and two together and realize, holy crap, that was an earthquake. 
and a dandy. Apparently, it was it was felt all over the Salt Lake City area. It was felt up into southern Idaho, even even up into Logan, Utah. And I'm just remembering. I'm sorry. I just had to reminisce for a moment about how I was rattled before, but that earthquake was kind of like the the icing on the cake. And oh, and by the way, if you if you thought there was there was panic before with you know bottled water and toilet paper and all the uh, staples you know flying off the shelves, that one cemented it. That was uh, that was time to strip those shelves bare, and uh, it it just got a lot of people's attention. Now we've come a long way in the last year. Not necessarily in the right direction, but at the very least, we have uh, hopefully developed some stress inoculation where, okay, we've dealt with stressful, unusual, even eerie circumstances, and I think we're a little bit better equipped to face these things. At least I hope we are. That's my goal. My goal is always to to leave you feeling stronger, more self-assured of who you are and what you stand for than it is to leave you feeling fearful, angry, and, you know, looking for a target that you can lash out at. So with that in mind, let's uh, let's delve into some wrong think. One of the things that uh, has just marveled has been a marvel to me over the the years that I've been paying attention. I would say I've been paying really close attention for a little over 25 years, as in I've had to do daily research and, and come up with content and defend my point of view um, on, on a talk show. And one of the places where I've seen the most pushback has been within the education establishment, which views alternatives to its system as something like uh, terrorist training camps. And I'm talking not just homeschool, but private schools. Well, you don't want to do that. Why not everybody can do that? That's, that's privilege. You're flexing your privilege. Saw an article yesterday from J.D. Tusil. This is from uh, Reason Magazine or Reason.com. The education establishment fears you might teach your kids unapproved ideas. And his point here is that public schools can barely teach kids at all, but their defenders don't want you trying alternatives. He says, when, with families opting out of the faltering public schools in ever-growing numbers, the establishment's attack on competing education offerings continues apace. Now a retired teacher insists that private schools may become terrorist training camps. This over-the-top argument is the latest attempt to reinterpret the refreshing viewpoint diversity offered by chosen educational offerings as a danger to the American way of life. So it's a one-time journalism teacher Susan Johnson in a Charleston Gazette Mail column who argues the American public school is where we learn to be Americans. I'm sorry, that has a very Soviet feel to it. (laughs) She says, uh, in public schools, the public decides the curriculum. The public votes to elect school boards who decide the facts our children will be taught. We leave high school and enter college or the workforce with a common set of civic norms and agreed upon facts that are derived from reason, critical thinking, and the scientific method. Now, Tusil points out that Johnson contrasts values taught in government institutions with what she sees as nefarious alternatives. So here's what she's thinking about the alternatives you might be thinking of for your kids. Johnson writes, in charter schools, a private board decides the curriculum. Same for private schools. One board might teach that the earth is flat. Another might teach that the Pope is infallible. Another might teach that he's the Antichrist. Many children are homeschooled using private instructional programs, some that are online, that are marketed for particular religious and political persuasions. End quote. Oh, no. To what dire fate could all of these independently selected curricula lead? Asks J.D. Tusil. And here's the funny thing about it. 
invoking fearful visions of fundamentalist Islamic schools training terrorists, Johnson asks, are we very far away from schools like that in America? Proud Boy Academy? Boogaloo Boot Camp? What the heck? J.D. Seal says, you know, this is the kind of stuff that, this is bang your head on the desk silliness rooted in a fundamental misrepresentation of what public schools are all about. Now, he reminds us, just last year, the New York Times' Dana Goldstein marveled at the contrasting ideological spin in textbooks crafted for public schools in California and Texas. The books have the same publisher, they credit the same authors, rather, but they are customized for students in different states. And their contents sometimes diverge in ways that reflect the nation's deepest partisan divides. Classroom materials are not only shaded by politics, but are also helping to shape a generation of future voters. In this, if this conflict of interpretations is what Johnson means by a common set of civic norms and agreed-upon facts, the schools in which she taught must use words in extremely unusual ways. Or maybe she's shading the fact that public school curricula are constant sources of struggle over emphasis and ideological content among people with particular religious and political persuasions. In truth, he says, disagreements over what kids are taught in public schools are so common that the Cato Institute maintains an online map to track the the various battles. And there is a link to that in the article. The introduction notes Americans are diverse, ethnically, religiously, ideologically, but all must pay for public schools. The intention is good, to bring people together and foster social harmony. But rather than build bridges, public schooling often forces people into wrenching conflict. End quote. Now, J.D. Tussil says Johnson probably knows this. She taught in those schools. Her silly warning that private schools might divert kids into the boogaloo movement, it's the latest expression of establishment fears that the state is losing its grip on young minds. Now, there's more to this. We're actually going to revisit something that we were talking about last year, which was uh, a very uh, harsh article by uh, Elizabeth Bartholay from Harvard's Law School regarding homeschooling. I don't know if you remember, but uh, Carrie McDonald, who's been a guest on this program, um, actually debated uh, Bartholay as well as others. And I think uh, she, she actually carried the day quite nicely, pun intended there. We will be back in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing this article from J.D. Tusil from Reason.com. The education establishment fears you might teach your kids unapproved ideas. Well, I specialize in unapproved ideas, so you know that's good with me. I was mentioning as we went to break that uh, there was an article from Harvard Law School's Elizabeth Bartholay. This was in a high-profile Arizona Law Review article last year, I believe, or maybe might have been late 2019. Anyway, Bartholay said a very large proportion of homeschooling parents are ideologically committed to isolating their children from the majority culture 
and indoctrinating them in views and values that are in serious conflict with that culture. Now, I have two words in response to the idea that what, someone might want to isolate their kids from majority culture or indoctrinate them in views and values that may be in conflict with that culture? Here are the two words. Cardi B. Yes. Yes, the singer, Cardi B. Look, I didn't watch the Grammys a few days ago, but uh, my understanding is she performed her signature song, WAP, which is an ode to her genitalia and to what she expects sexually from her suitors. Um, which, by the way, you know, the song was performed live as part of the Grammys. You know, the, the pinnacle of musical talent there. Yeah. Can you imagine a parent trying to isolate their child from that part of our majority culture? Or trying to indoctrinate them in views or values that are in serious conflict with whatever it is Cardi B is teaching them? <laughs> it's unthinkable. <laughs> Okay, sarcasm off. Now, Bartholay, just so you know, favored a presumptive ban on homeschooling. That's how we need to protect the kids. And, and she went on to argue policymakers should impose greater restrictions on private schools for many of the same reasons that they should restrict homeschooling. And J.D. Tuseal asks, once again, it's fair to ask which majority culture Bartholay favors, that in California textbooks or in those of Texas? but that would be missing the point. In less florid language, the Harvard professor preceded the retired teacher in advocating a state monopoly over what children are taught. Now, Homeschool Legal Defense Association's uh, Michael Donnelly told J.D. Tussil in email, quote, the idea that only government schools can or should make people American is a dangerously statist notion that should be rejected. Freedom of education is at the heart of our founding principles of self-governance and liberty. In a free society, education should not be one place and one system that seeks to create servile citizens. Rather, education is all about helping learners, all learners, achieve their fullest individual potential. Love that quote. So despite the objections of Johnson, Bartholay, and company, freedom of education is enjoying a boom. In fact, while interest in education choice has been growing for years, fueling experiments in charter schools, vouchers, tax credits, and homeschooling, it has really taken off the past 12 months because of the abject failures of the public schooling establishment to effectively teach children during the pandemic. <clears throat> and Emma Green wrote in The Atlantic last September, COVID-19 has created a strange natural experiment in American education. Families who would never otherwise have considered taking their children out of school feel desperate enough to try it. Then NPR, NPR reported back in October, comprehensive national data aren't available yet, but reporting by NPR and our member stations, along with media reports around the country, shows enrollment declines in dozens of school districts across 20 states. And families, by and large, like their new options, says J.D. Tuseal. According to uh, February polling by Ed Choice, that's Education Choice, private school and traditional homeschool parents remain more positive about their children's progress compared to district school parents. Now, the numbers remain stronger for homeschoolers and private schoolers than for district school families across academic learning, educational development, and social development. But J.D. Tusil says undoubtedly many of the families choosing new educational options are teaching their kids ideas of which Johnson and company disapprove. But as children learn perhaps conflicting ways to be Americans, 
that they can hash out in healthy discussion and debate. They're wonderfully free of force-fed lessons crafted by smug defenders of establishment-approved versions of the truth. Ooh, that last line just really lands it. Look, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist. You don't have to to think, well, you know, the Trilateral Commission are the ones who uh, decide what's going to be in this textbook and what isn't. Just understand that whoever writes the check to pay for those textbooks, in this case, it's some government functionary. Yep, these are the books we're going to buy. I would assume that it's that's just part of human nature, that a person would understand those textbooks are more likely to favor whoever is in power in the way that they portray whatever you know they're trying to portray. And if you haven't done this, I strongly recommend take a look at textbooks from even 10 years ago versus textbooks today. It gets even more dramatic, though, when you start looking back 40, 50, 60, 80 years And you see the things that were emphasized. It's not that all the facts have changed, but the interpretation of many of those facts definitely is being spun to favor whoever happens to be in power at the time. What's the old saying, right? The winners write the history books. Well, in a sense, the winners, the people with their hands on the lever of power, are the ones who write the textbooks. Not just history, but other books as well. This says nothing about, you know, what teachers unions are doing or other uh, lobbyists within, you know, the legislative process that are trying to to make things like uh, critical race theory and intersectionality and other things like this a a, a staple, maybe a, a central focal point for education as opposed to the basics of reading, writing, arithmetic, etc., Anyway, it's a great article, J.D. Seal from uh, Reason.com. I have a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find a lot of good reading, actually. So one of the things that uh, I know a lot of people are contending with these days is the fact that it is so easy to offend somebody. And this, you know, you think about it when there are people out there who are not just, you know, living their lives and doing their best, you know, to get along, but instead are actively looking to be offended. Why? Because when I'm offended, I can step up in front of those TV cameras and I can preen and I can strut and I can, you know, crow and and cackle and I can lambaste you for not doing what I tell you to do because you should feel guilty and you should do whatever I say. When you know people like that are lurking and, and perhaps even watching every move you make or just actively listening to everything you say, looking for that reason to be offended, yeah, it's pretty understandable why people would find themselves on the defensive. Got a great article here from Kent McManigal reminding us that no matter how carefully you live your life, you will always offend someone. And I like his advice, which is pretty much stop worrying about it and still do something that matters. He says, uh, the righteous and holy arbiters of what is acceptable now seek to cancel Dr. Seuss. And Kent McManigal says, this may be my final straw with cancel culture. Yes, Some of Dr. Seuss's illustrations look insensitive today because he and his drawings aren't from today, but from an earlier time. And he says, I seriously doubt he would draw them the same if he were drawing them today. Even then, someone would be offended. His illustrations make everyone look ridiculous in one way or another. Even plants, gadgets, animals. Most playful portrayals of people are inaccurate and silly. People have traits that will be exaggerated for effect, and people do dumb things which seem funny. Otherwise, what would distinguish anyone from the crowd? Why draw them? He says, if you eliminate all representations of people of other races and cultures that might offend someone, 
you can't complain if only one bland race is represented everywhere from now on. So should we get rid of everything that doesn't fit how we imagine people should be portrayed? How rude will current illustrations and writings look in a few decades or centuries? And he asks, should they then get rid of everything from our era that doesn't live up to their new standards? Interesting question. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but uh, I strongly recommend click on the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and check it out for yourself. I'm not telling you go out there and boldly be offensive to people because that's not what I'm about. I'm about telling you your message has value. Stop worrying about who it's going to offend. Worry instead about who it might positively impact and then say what needs to be said. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've been sharing an article here from Kent McManigal. This is from everythingvoluntary.com. If you haven't signed up for the email... They will, they will send right to your email inbox several different columns. I think they do this at least five days a week, and it's always good stuff. Ken McManigal is, is particularly talking about how you will always offend someone. And I love the question he asks about, you know, if, if we continue on this current path that we're on right now, what are our current illustrations and writings going to be look, looking like in a few decades or even in a few centuries? And he poses the question. <clears throat> Should we get rid of everything that doesn't fit how we imagine people should be portrayed? Should we get rid of everything from our era that doesn't live up to the new standards of whoever is offended at the moment? Standards that may or may not be better? And he asks, do you believe that hiding the past is ever a good idea? So here comes some really sound advice. Again, this is from Kent McManigal. When you're offended by something, he says, it says more about you than about the person who did whatever offended you. Everyone is offended by something. He says, I'm a bit offended by statues of politicians or military figures, but I think it's important not to erase signs of the past. The next generation could grow up imagining the past was exactly like the present, except for the fuzzy notions of old technology. Why bother striving to improve if you can't see proof humans have improved throughout history? Now, he says, I also find these calls to ban certain Dr. Seuss books offensive, but since I'm adult, I'm an adult rather, I don't imagine I have a right not to be offended. Such a right can't exist. Everything is going to be offensive to someone. So he says, I stand with Dr. Seuss. I stand with Lenny Bruce, Colin Kaepernick, uh, Jordan B. Peterson, even politicians who have offended someone at some time. To do otherwise will cripple civilization and paralyze us into inaction for fear that someone, somewhere, will be offended. His advice is get over it. Get over it and get on with life. Do something worthwhile. You'll offend someone, but do it anyway. I really love his point too about uh, when you're offended by something it says more about you than about the person who did whatever offended you. And I'll, I'll give you an example of what this looks like because uh, this is something um, I just uh, I was uh, listening to uh, Neil Larson, who's one of the hosts on the Fed by Ravens uh, Media Network. And uh, he was talking about a letter that was read over the pulpit at uh, a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, meeting, a Sunday meeting, 
um, essentially disinviting those who choose not to wear a face mask to their, uh, their religious worship service. And for those who don't know, this has been kind of an interesting point of contention within a number of different LDS you know, congregations and, and just within LDS culture. Uh, there, there are some who feel uh, very strongly that, uh, you know, if you're not wearing a mask, you're not being a Christ-like person. You're, you're showing um, disdain or, or disrespect, you know, for the people around you. And it's, it's a very curious place to be. Um, just a, a few weeks ago at church, as I was sitting there, uh, maskless, you know, there was, a, there was a couple of speakers who, who mentioned things that, in retrospect, yep, they could definitely have been taken as kind of a, a, an admonition to wear the mask. You know, do, do what your church leaders are asking you to do. Even if you don't agree with it, you know, do this and whatnot. And I've had a couple of people ask me since then, did you feel like that was aimed, you know, at, at you and me and, you know, anyone else who wasn't wearing a mask? And in, you know what? I'm happy to tell you, in looking back, I remember the comments and I remember the thought flitting through my mind, huh, I wonder if, that, uh, I wonder if that's kind of a, uh, you know, little uh, thump on the chest there to, uh, to those who aren't wearing the masks, you know, telling them, hey, get, get in line. But I didn't take offense. And, and I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm bragging, but I was actually proud of myself. I wasn't looking for offense in the first place, but I totally can see how the, the speaker's comments could be taken as, you know, singling people out and chastening them, no, 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 with the wag of the finger. But I had to choose whether or not to take offense. I chose not to. Yes, it could probably apply to me, but you know what? I'm not looking for a reason to, to be offended. I'm not looking for somebody to, to, to validate my, my fears of my own victimhood. I'm not a victim. Now, I'm also the guy who, you know, doesn't wear a mask at church. And, and I can see, I mean, I understand. There, there are those who, um, I, I won't say that they, they give me the stink eye, because they don't. They're very, very kind, but I, I see concern in their eyes. And, and it started as concern for, oh, my gosh, you know, Brother Hyde, are you, are you risking, you know, giving people coronavirus or perhaps catching it yourself? But now I think that concern is more based in, are you being disobedient? Are you, uh, are you losing your faith? And like a lot of people, you know, it's, this is not a matter of rebellion. This is not a matter of, uh, well, you know, I, I have to do it this way because only I know what's right. I like how Neil Larson put it. Uh, he, had, he had reached out to me uh, last night and just sent me a message, and he just said, this is a matter of conscience. There's, there's something in my conscience that is saying, do not go along with putting on the face mask, you know, as a sign of submission. And that's, that's where I'm coming from as well. And I get it. Not everybody understands that. And, and frankly, I, I'll admit, I'm trying to look for higher motives in the, the people who might, uh, might be reaching out and saying something about, uh, you know, well, I, I really think you should wear that. I honestly believe they're probably doing it from a, a place of genuine concern. And so I'm, I'm flattered. I actually, I'm, I'm complimented that they care enough about me that they would, they would risk offending me by saying something. Now, that doesn't mean I agree with them, and it doesn't mean, well, I guess I better, you know, bend the knee and put on the mask. But do you see my point about if you want to be offended, you're going to find a reason to be offended. If you don't thrive on being offended, and if you aren't looking for a reason to be offended, you're not. And I'll let this go with one final thought. It is a very liberating state of mind 
to know that uh, nobody has the power to offend you unless you give them permission to. Saves you a lot of heartache. All right, moving on. Found a great article from Jeff Minnick. You know, with all the focus that we see on uh, on our political leaders, the, the closer you look, the harder it is to trust most politicians. But instead of staying hyper-focused on, you know, the, the high political offices, Jeff Minnick is saying, let's look past our Lilliputian leaders and use our influence where it counts, closer to home. I'm enjoying the classical literature reference of Gulliver's Travels. You remember Lilliputia? Wasn't that the little people that... Somehow they, they, they tied down Gulliver the giant. Anyway, Jeff Minnick says all the presidents of the 21st century, Bush, Obama, Biden, yes, even Donald Trump, seem a cut below the gravitas and statesmanship of the founding fathers. He says the first three were and are globalists, and as anyone with eyes can see, Joe Biden and his crew are busy taking a wrecking ball to our liberties. He says regarding Donald Trump, I believe his love of America is sincere, But his pandemic economic policies, followed up by the Biden bailouts, have done grave damage to the economic health of our country. Now, he says the founders put America first. And while they, too, made mistakes in both foreign and domestic policy, in general, they came across as Americans who loved their country. And those who become president, became president, rather, did their best to honor their oath of office to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Those who were legislators seemed to also uphold their oath to the country. Now, compared to these individuals and even 20th century members of Congress, today's legislators also seem smaller in spirit and ability as well. Lilliputians who lack the gravitas of their predecessors. Likewise, he says, in the corporate world, operators like Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos seem more like teenagers I've known than grown-ups. Cocky, snide, ignorant of human nature, and contemptuous of those they serve. Meanwhile, the rest of us suffer the consequences of their policies. And he gives a few examples here. Jeff Minnick says, We spend a fortune on elementary and secondary school students. Yet our system is miserably failing most of them, with only 37% of high school seniors proficient in reading, while less than a quarter are proficient in math. Our politicians brag about our coronavirus vaccines and continue in many places to favor lockdowns and masks all while allowing COVID-19 positive illegal immigrants to cross our borders and enter our nation. He says we boast of our military might, but when was the last time we actually won a war? One wonders if we could win one anymore, for as Brian T. Kennedy writes, in facing up to the China threat, our country no longer has enough ships and munitions to defeat China's navy, absent the use of nuclear weapons. Well, that's a pleasant thought. And then this is one that really spoke to me. He says, when's the last time any one of us heard our, one of our vaunted leaders speak in defense of the family? A number of them regularly tout transgender rights, but it's hard to remember any of our politicians actually praise the traditional family. Not so long ago, we considered the family the cornerstone of culture and society. Today, we hear little or nothing about it except from some of our religious leaders. There's more to this article. I'll share that with you in, in the, the next segment. In the meantime, you can visit the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are show notes for March 18th, 2021. I promise you will find many hours of good reading in those notes. We'll be back in just a moment. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, we are just engaging in uh, the dissemination of information and commentary that is uh, intended to make you think, not to make you agree. And this is an important distinction because I do not have all the answers, nor will I pretend that I do. But I do have access to a lot of really great thinkers on a daily basis. And I share those resources with you. There's actually a special page on my website called Resources for Wrong Thinkers. And I, I highly recommend spend some time considering what some of these folks have to say. I'm not going to say they're all right. Every one of them is 100% absolutely infallibly correct. But they definitely seem to get it right more often than not. And they can definitely add to your understanding of the world around us. I've been sharing an article here from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org. And it's uh, looking past our Lilliputian leaders. Jeff Minnick says in the December 2020 issue of Chronicles, a magazine of American culture, S.T. Karnick's article demonstrates how an army of politicians, bureaucrats, and judges have exploited a vast web of laws and regulations to undermine our nation's culture. From schools to motion pictures, from radio to art, our government has played a major role in shaping today's ugly culture. And Jeff Minnick asks the question, who is accountable for such insidious changes? His answer is, by and large, it's our leadership that must bear the blame. Karnick concludes his article this way, quote, systematically removing the vast web of laws and regulations that enable the state to dominate the culture is a necessary element of any attempt to reassert traditional American values, end quote. Now, Jeff Minnick says, okay, I agree, but how exactly does that dismantlement take place? Given the direction taken by the state and our leaders in the past century, how do we reverse course short of some sort of revolution or a commitment to making the required changes over a period of decades. Well, he says, given our current circumstances, I do have some suggestions. But he says none of them, to be frank, offer any sort of solution to the problem of our dearth of leaders interested in the welfare of the rest of us. So first of all, he says, the majority of us already mistrust our elites. They've earned that lack of faith. We should continue to regard all of them with suspicion. I agree, by the way. Healthy skepticism is your friend. He says we should begin to focus more on our, of our attention on local politics. We've all heard the trickle-down theory of economics, the idea that tax cuts for the rich will benefit the rest of us. Well, what if we practiced a trickle-up theory in politics in which local leaders and local elections might improve our lives and eventually have an effect on state and federal policies? Finally, he says we should continue to build, as many are now doing, small groups that enhance our culture and preserve our history and allow us to share opinions and ideas. Book clubs, homeschool co-ops, pod pod schools, investment clubs, prayer groups. By the way, that last one, do not overlook that. There, There is power in prayer. All these and more, he says, can help keep alive the ideals and dreams of America. Jeff Minnick concludes by saying our leadership is morally bankrupt and even corrupt. So he says it's time we stopped looking to them for them to fix our problems and turn instead to those around us and to our own selves for solutions. 
Does that sound scary? I mean, does that, does that make you, well, wait a minute, I don't know that much. How could I possibly make a difference? But this is how free men and free women think. They're not looking for someone else to come riding to their rescue. And, and the painful truth that not many people want to consider is no one is coming to rescue us. Okay, I take that back. There is one who is coming, but his rescue is much more general than just the political salvation of the United States. He's coming to uh, rescue the whole world, but that's, that's another topic for another time. As far as what you and I should be doing, we're going to have to make our own feet move. We're going to have to be the ones to take those steps. Prepared or not, we have to be the ones willing to, to make the moves to secure those freedoms. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes again, Jeff Minnick, and looking past our Lilliputian leaders. All right, shifting gears. There's one last commentary I wanted to share with you. You know, if you were to ask 10 people on the street, why does government exist? I think it's a pretty safe bet. Most of them would say some variant of, well, it exists, Brian, to keep us safe. Judge Andrew Napolitano says, no, actually, our government was called into existence to keep us free And current efforts to undermine our individual privacy are making us less free in every way. And he warns about the coming war on privacy. Napolitano says when Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked at his conservation hearings or confirmation hearings earlier this month what his priorities would be if confirmed, he responded immediately that it would be a vigorous pursuit of domestic terrorism. Now, he didn't say... He would lead vigorous prosecutions, just vigorous pursuits. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous business, says Napolitano, for the Department of Justice, because that transforms its role from prosecuting crimes after they happen to predicting who would commit crimes that never happen. So how could the feds predict crimes? Well, they would attempt to do so by a serious uptick in domestic surveillance of broad categories of people based on political and ideological views. He says the government loves to cast out fishing nets, so to speak, and then intimidate or prosecute whomever they bring in. The National Security Agency, America's 60,000-person strong domestic spying apparatus, already captures all data transmitted on fiber optic cable into, out of, and within the U.S. That's every email, text, and phone call, but they don't admit to this. When the FBI desperately sought to gain entry to the, two, to the cell phones of two deceased mass murderers in San Bernardino, California, a few years ago, the NSA would not help them because doing so would acknowledge the NSA's mass warrantless spying. Stymied by their own colleagues' refusal to admit their unconstitutional behavior, but emboldened that the NSA could get away with this, the federal agents either would break the law themselves by engaging in warrantless surveillance or obtain warrants from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court or FISA Court by claiming foreign terrorism as a pretext for domestic law enforcement surveillance. Now, Napolitano says under the unconstitutional standards employed by the FISA court, if the feds present probable cause of an American's communication with a foreign person, the FISA court would issue a search warrant for surveillance of all communications of the American. But he says this is unconstitutional because the standard for obtaining search warrants from a judge is articulated in the Fourth Amendment, which neither the Congress nor the courts can change. The standard is probable cause of crime. Is it more likely than not? It is more li- is it more likely than not that the place to be searched contains evidence of crimes? In other words, not probable cause of communication with a foreigner. 
Now, he says the former is a high standard intended to compel the courts before issuing search warrants to take account of the natural right to privacy, to prevent government fishing expeditions and force the government to focus its law enforcement efforts on real rather than imagined crimes. The FISA standard, which morphed by a series of secret judicial opinions from probable cause of being a foreign agent to probable cause of communicating with a foreign agent to probable cause of communicating with a foreign person, is far easier for federal agents to demonstrate than is probable cause of crime. It means that a call to my cousins in Florence is a sufficient basis for the feds to get a search warrant to surveil legally all of my communication, telephone, texting, and emails. And FBI and other federal agents know this. They know how easy it is to get a warrant from the FISA court. The most recent statistics revealed it granted 99.96% of all surveillance applications. So when FBI agents go to the FISA court with probable cause of communication with a foreign person, but they're really looking for their target's domestic criminal communications, they've engaged in an act of corruption, deceived the court, and cut holes in the Constitution they swore to uphold. Once they have all of a person's communications, their plan is to find something that would constitute probable cause of crime or enable them to use fear of exposure to induce the person to work for them undercover. So if your neighbor tells you on the phone how happy he is in his anti-government group and then someone in the group trespasses on government property and is arrested, expect a knock on your door from the feds who will demand to know what you knew and when you knew it. If the trespass is a felony, they can claim they can prosecute you for your silence. This, too, is unconstitutional. Silence is protected by the First Amendment. This is the danger of the Garland devotion to predicting who would commit crime, and it will get worse. Expect the next legislative step to be proposals that impose the legal obligation to report suspicious activities, where failure to do so would be a crime. This would turn the U.S. into East Germany, where thousands were prosecuted for failure to report their neighbors, family, and friends and thousands more suffered from prosecutions based on false reports. Napolitano says the government loves to give the impression that it has caught bad guys before they struck, thereby keeping us safe. He says don't believe it. The government's first task is to keep us free. But when it violates the Constitution, it keeps us neither safe nor free. And it also raises the question, who will keep us safe from the government? This is The Brian Hyde Show.